and welcome to Dairy Dialogue number 77. And it's a week in which I'm still a bit in the doghouse. Of course, coronavirus continues to dominate the news and our lives and this podcast. I'm Jim Cornall, editor of Dairy Reporter, and I managed to upset my eight-year-old this week by setting him some schoolwork to do last Friday, as we have done every day since the lockdown. And then we discovered at lunchtime that it was actually a day off for teacher professional development. And now they're off for two weeks for Easter holidays. Amazing how quickly you settle into a routine, and I hope wherever you are, you're coping okay, reading, playing games, listening to music, or doing what most people are doing, and that's posting videos online. The weather continues to be great here, of course, and I did manage to get out for a walk on Saturday and saw no people, two cars, 11 tractors, a rabbit, a deer, lots of birds, and of course, lots of sheep and cows. I do consider myself very lucky to live in a rural area with such a low population. Funny how now we're all locked inside, the weather's good, and petrol or gas is the lowest it's been for a long time. Although not buying saves more money than buying, even when it's cheap, if that makes any sense. I guess I should let you know who our guests are on the show this week, and you'll not be surprised by what the common theme is. We chatted with Brad Tripp, sales manager at Greensource Automation, about automation in the age of pandemics. Ara Trasdal, co-founder and CEO of Crisp, about how retailers can predict demand. And John Umhafer, executive director of the Wisconsin Cheesemakers Association, about how the coronavirus pandemic is affecting cheese production and consumption in the U.S. and the NMPF and IDFA proposed milk crisis plan. And of course, we have our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. And the markets are certainly connected to coronavirus as well. Hopefully everyone out there is doing okay, wherever you may be. One thing this has definitely proven is how interconnected we all are, how no countries are immune to this. I will say, if working from home is driving you a bit insane, then as I've worked at home for a few years now, you can appreciate why I'm completely crazy. Right, let's get to this week's news, and again, no prizes for the main topic of conversation. Some companies are offering remote technical support during coronavirus isolation, and that's for things like troubleshooting machinery issues. The RABDF, which is the Royal Association of British Dairy Farmers, is looking to the UK government to prevent dairy disruption. Australian dairy farmers have been invited to take part in a soil carbon project. Ketone has signed a new deal worth more than $3 million. In New Zealand, Westland Milk Products is operating as an essential service, and Maxim Foods has published its April Global Dairy Commodity Update. In the US, Z Natural Foods launched a new whole milk powder. In Switzerland, EMI responded to the coronavirus crisis, which has also caused some job losses at Agropur in Canada. We had a story on U.S. dairy farmers groups calling on the U.S. government for help, and in Europe, the EDA is ramping up pressure for activating private storage aid. And we had articles on the DFA purchasing a portion of Dean Foods assets, as well as our roundup of just a few of the new products hitting the dairy aisles in March. All of these stories, and quite a few more, can be found at dairyreporter.com. 
So let's get to this week's guests. And it's only just dawned on me that they're all in the US. Our first guest this week is Brad Tripp, who is sales manager at Green Source Automation. The company produces rotary mate dairy robots, which obviously don't have to do social distancing. The company sent out a press release extolling the virtues of automation in light of the current pandemic. So that's a part of what we talked about with Brad. Although, of course, the first question is to get some more information about the company. So Green Source Automation was a um, brainchild of a gentleman named Jim Frias, our president and founder. And he has always, by trade, been a mechanical contractor and owned a mechanical contracting company in the Central Valley of California. That company is called Ram Mechanical, and uh, Ram Mechanical has worked in automation and other industry since uh, beginning in the, the 90s. So our DNA and our background is mechanical and automation in industry. In the mid-2000s, because of our location in the Central Valley of California, the community is, uh, has a high concentration of dairymen, and through community interactions and friends and understanding what Ram Mechanical did, some dairymen actually approached Ram Mechanical with the thought of using robots to milk cows. And so we looked at it from the approach that we do from other industries. And so our early qualifications were that for it to be a successful project for Ram Mechanical, the early criteria were that we needed to see continuous flow production. Automation at that time, things have changed tremendously in the last couple of years, but at that time automation was really only about repetitive tasks. and That's what we base this on, but those repetitive tasks tend to happen more smoothly and effectively with continuous flow production as opposed to batch. So uh, when we looked at that, uh, we saw continuous flow production with the advancements that were being made with uh, rotary parlors. With a parallel parlor, we we don't see the continuous flow uh, but there's also some other technical challenges with, with working with a parallel. So we identified an opportunity to automate some of the stations that are common on a rotary, where you have that specific task that's repetitive in a specific location. Uh, there was some very significant challenges to overcome in the beginning when you compare what we do to what the majority of the robot population in the world does, and the significant changes were, we were one of the first, if not the first, companies to use this type of robot on an animate object. Uh, So working with a living, moving animal that has its own free will uh, is very different to what these robots were designed to do, which was to go to point A and then to point B and having objects at those specific locations. Another uh, significant challenge that we had was that these machines are made to be used on an assembly line, which doesn't sound significant other than a line is straight, and we are working on a carousel which has a curved radius. And tackling that challenge was a year of R&D and literally rewriting the coding that comes with a standard robot. I mean, we had to basically take this robot, break it down on the programming side, 
redo it to make it work for dairy. By 2007, we were on farm with our first robot. We now have 13 years of in-field experience. And we started in 2007 with the uh, easiest position to automate from our perspective, which was the application of dips. So we started with a spraying robot, and that, that was our first generation of robots. By 2011, we had developed the EXPS, which is our pre-dip robot that uses brushes to not only apply dip, but to clean and stimulate and sanitize as well. And that, that was a significant advancement and, and really put green source on the map. Certainly, we made some waves when we came out with the first robot. Uh, it was marketed as Ram Mechanical's robot with this being uh, a replicatable machine or configuration, GreenSource was born to focus strictly on this configuration and to work with dairy farmers. So Ram Mechanical continues to exist and they continue to work in industrial and commercial applications. They work globally in automation projects where GreenSource works globally in automation projects on rotary dairy. Our significant strengths are our processing speeds. Our robots now are processing cows at, at speeds of up to 4.4 seconds per cow, which is uh, approximately 15 to 18,000 milkings per day that our robots can process. And, and are you still? Do you still work on R and D? I mean, are you still developing a lot of um, either tweaks to this system or improvements to this system or other systems as well? Yes, we are. Uh, we, we currently have the post-dip system and we have the pre-dip system. There are other stations, of course, on a rotary. Typically, there's five stations. There's the pre-dip station, the drying or wiping station, the attachment station, a roamer who's looking for premature detachment or liner slippage, and then there's the post-dip station. And so we've automated the positions for the pre-dip station and the post-dip station. And now we are working towards automating some of those other stations. There's a big debate on, on whether it makes sense to have a automated position for the attachment, which would really represent the opportunity to have a completely automated barn. Uh, but there's some, some more significant challenges that we would need to, to make that work uh, but we also are getting feedback from our partner clients that are telling us that that may not be an interest to them just because of the fact that the parlor is the best place to have a human see cows on a daily basis. When those cows are coming through two or three times a day, that's the, a good place to observe those cows. And so if they're going to have somebody observing the cows, they might as well have them attach units as well. The other perspective that, that we're working to evaluate is that with this type of technology, we're using the industrial robot, our success rate or our performance per cow is high when compared to human labor. And we've identified that in human labor and in, in the dipping process, if you look at 24-hour-a-day milking, the average success rate of a human applying that dip is between 90 and 95%. Uh, we guarantee that our robots will treat a minimum of 95% of the cows 
but with attachment, you have to have 100%. And to move the needle from 90 to 95 is easier than moving from 99.9 .9 to 100. So there's some uh, challenges there, and also we need to have more collaboration with the parlor manufacturers. Well, certainly the initial genesis of the system was to save labor costs. There's additional benefit besides the labor. Now, certainly looking that, at that in, a, in the light of pandemic, for good manufacturing processes, the less interaction that we have between human and animal, the better, and automation certainly provides that, and, and, and that's one thing that we, we do contribute. The robots also, from that perspective, they, they don't have a bad day. They don't call in sick. Uh, they don't have automobile accidents driving to work. Uh, and, and then there's, uh, you know, the, the obvious, you know, there's no workman's comp. There's less overhead. There's less management. But also, there's less of a, a human load in the facility. So there's fewer people and fewer opportunities for transmission. Do you think that after the after all of this dies down, that there'll be an increased interest in automation and, and products such as this? Yes, uh, but I don't know how much credit I'd attribute that to the pandemic. Um, the, the growth curve for automation globally is phenomenal now, but also the, that growth curve in dairy is, you know, we're, we're in the growth phase. We're, we're through the early adopter phase. And uh, that growth is happening tremendously as it is now. There will be some additional uh, attention paid to what automation can do for pandemic. And there will be those forward-thinking producers that see those intangible benefits of you know, reducing the human-to-cow interaction and reducing the workload in a facility uh, as benefits how that will transfer into their decision-making process. It'll be on their mind, but I don't think it's going to be the end-all decision-maker. You know, as much as we do talk about and promote the secondary benefits of automation, a lot of times that decision still boils down to the, the labor cost savings. Now, it's difficult to put a, put a pencil to some of those secondary benefits, but that's where we've been focusing some of our attention is trying to decipher what the value of those benefits are. What is the value of consistent interaction with the cow? What is the value of not having a human right at the bridge where the cow is loading and she can pay attention to loading on or walking onto the carousel rather than be distracted by motion off to the, uh, in her periphery? There is value there. There is value in reducing that workforce. It's just difficult to put a, an economic pencil to that. And everybody interprets those numbers differently. Clearly, it's a very fast-moving part of industry. It's dynamic right now. You know, where, where we talked about how these robots were built for continuous flow production, and I said at the time, you know, that's the latest trend right now is that there's there's smart robots that can literally change themselves and and make widget A and then immediately based on its directive turn and make widget B and and they couldn't do that a couple of years ago. You know, they they could make minor differences and be programmed for for differentiation, but what they can do now for customization, the sensor technology between changing from being able to change on the fly Sensor technology right now is it, it's changing by the day. 
and the artificial intelligence is revolutionizing automation and, and what we'll see in the next five to ten years is and what we're already seeing is mind-blowing you know the way that within weeks uh, they could take a agricultural spraying drone and uh, change that into a drone that can sanitize a building for coronavirus, it's phenomenal how quickly they, they can make those changes. That process is just going to continue in exponential growth. On the sensor technology, you know, that's allowing for just more precision, more accuracy, more data, more feedback, and data is king. And that's some of the things that we're looking at as well for other potential opportunities. We have a machine that's got a camera system like ours right now. If we can uh, enhance those sensors, there's things that, that we can look at and that we're hoping to evaluate where maybe we can do some pregnancy checking, maybe we can do some mastitis checking. And that's all because of the advancements in what we can do with sensors. And of course, again, we're talking about at the farm level, but even throughout the dairy industry at the processing level and beyond that, there's applications in, in those areas too. Oh, be, oh absolutely. Yeah, it's, it's beyond dairy. It's beyond the farm. It's everywhere. Now, during this pandemic, different countries are at different stages of the curve when it comes to the number of infections and things like the kind of quarantine and isolation that citizens are having to endure. After China, Europe has been particularly badly hit, with Spain and Italy slightly ahead of countries like the UK. Of course, people need to be fed, and in some countries we've seen hoarding and a range of products flying off the shelves. To keep up with that and to help U.S. retailers tap into what is happening in Europe so that they can plan their own strategies and see what's happening elsewhere, CRISP has developed a new data modeling tool called DemandWatch, which is constantly being updated and shows trends for a whole range of products. To tell us more about how it works, how retailers can access it for free, and about the company, is its founder, Arya Trasdal. CRISP, we're uh, focused on uh, the demand forecasting for the food uh, industry so that our customers have a really uh, good understanding of how much they will sell tomorrow, how much they will sell in a week, how much they will sell in 30 days, how much they will sell in three months, 12 months, uh, etc. So we use um, a tremendous amount of data and, uh, and, and machine learning and uh, artificial intelligence type of technologies to be able then to provide these highly accurate forecasts. And the demand watch modeler, uh, could you give me a bit of background on how that was developed and how it's helping food manufacturers and retailers at this time? Yeah, we were, um, when the coronavirus hit, we were uh, fortunate to work with uh, some large Scandinavian uh, retailers, uh, grocery retailers. And through those partnerships, we have the real-time purchase data uh, in the cash register. Uh, so Europe got hit before the U.S., so the spikes in demands happened there earlier. Uh, so we are providing this data for free then out to, to the U.S. manufacturers so they can kind of get a little peek into the future uh, of what the actual consumer demand is for these products. And especially now we're getting actually to about three weeks after the spike um, to see what is a sustained new demand uh, that the U.S. 
food manufacturers can expect looking at the European data. And you mentioned the US being slightly behind what's happening in Europe. Obviously, different countries have taken very different approaches. How do you focus all of that information so that you can make it clear? Yeah, correct. The countries have taken different approaches to how to flatten the curve. Uh, The consumer behavior is very much the same. The consumer behavior is when there is a risk uh, outside, the consumer behavior is to to make sure that they have food for themselves and for their family. So what we're seeing in terms of spikes uh, on products is very, very much the same. And it typically happens the day that the government announces, uh, for instance, that schools are shut down or uh, announces that now we're going to social distance and be at home and when restaurants start to shut down. That's typically in each, every market, there's like one day with a lot of uh, a big spike. Um, So what we do then is to line up that spike uh, across the different uh, markets and see uh, see what's happening the week after, the two weeks after, the three weeks after the spike. And it's particular to understand, are there shifts now in consumer demand? Are there some products that are actually in, when people are feel that they are safe uh, and they have stacked their pantries, what are the products they are then buying? So, so that's, that's really kind of what the data can be, can be used for. What benefits does that give to the companies themselves? It allows them to, to stock in the things that may be in short supply? Yeah, exactly. We can uh, get, 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 ahead of, uh, get ahead of the demand and get ahead of production. There's a lot of, in the dairy category too, there's a, lot of, there's a long production time on some of these products. So uh, understanding that in more real time and not uh, wait for the uh, for the information of, for purchase orders purchase to go through the entire kind of supply chain, uh, but to have a kind of a real view into what's happening out in the store is something that our uh, users of the product really really benefits them. Several of them are removed from understanding exactly what the consumer is doing. There's typically the stores that is like thousands of stores into the distribution centers. The distribution centers typically had a big buffer kind of going into the crisis. So it's hot, it's now has also been hard for the food manufacturers and the suppliers to separate out what is restocking of the inventory that was already out in the distribution chain and what is actual real consumer demand, changes in consumer demand. Um, so what we are giving our customers of this, they're giving a, a view into what in the real time, what is the actual consumer demand for that, that particular yogurt or butter or sour cream or uh, refrigerated desserts or uh, what it might be. Uh, Something that some of the retailers in the UK have done, and I'm not sure if that's replicated over Europe or whether it will happen in the US as well, is that in order to maintain supplies of what they consider staple products, they've reduced the number of products or the, the variety of products in the stores. Is it will that happen in the U.S. Do you think? Yeah, we're we're definitely seeing uh, we're definitely seeing that in the U.S. We're seeing that in uh, in Scandinavia as well. The I will say that actually looking at the data, things get back to normal a little bit fa- a little bit more than I think what consumers or what the industry uh, thinks. Things are actually kind of normalizing more when the fear from the consumers uh, are are less. It normalizes more. Um, when you have stocked your pantry with all of the shelf stable, longer uh, lasting, people are not making any more money. We have to remember that people are not 
increased their the amount of pay they get. Uh, potentially, it's the opposite. People have less money to actually spend now. So people are not going to keep hoarding food forever. So what we're seeing a lot in the data as well is that a lot of it is kind of coming back to normal once they feel people feel that they are safe and have what they need. And, and as far as the dairy industry is concerned, are you seeing more demand for longer life products like uh, UHT milk? We are seeing the whole category increase uh, in, uh, in the, the, the revenue for the entire category increasing. But that might also be a shift from people making their food at, uh, at home versus going to restaurants. So the entire category uh, uh, is, uh, is increasing. And we're seeing things like butter, for instance, sour cream, has seemed to have a sustained higher demand than it had before. Uh, before the crisis. Are you seeing an increase in demand for products with immunity claims like probiotics and and um, some kinds of yogurts? We are not seeing that actually in the data I looked at today. We didn't see in the dairy category. I didn't see that. Um, but we are seeing for sure seeing that trend in other categories uh, that products that have more of a kind of a, um, immunity or vitamins or health kind of claim has uh, has increased. We've seen that in other categories. And what's your data saying about the dairy category in general? It's a good news for the category of dairy, I think. When we looked at the numbers here, it looks uh, like most categories are up. So what we did is look at the numbers two weeks before the spike and then three weeks after the spike. So it's a five-week difference uh, between the, the first numbers we looked at and the numbers that we have now in real time. And we're seeing in that those numbers, we see that the overall category is up around uh, 15%. And that butter is up 27%. Sour cream is up 20%. Sour milk is up 30%. Refrigerated desserts up 12%. Yogurt in this one is actually down 15%. Uh, flavored milk is down uh, 24% and normal uh, sweet milk is up 31%. So most categories have seen, uh, and this is after the hoarding and after people have just kind of filled their pantries, uh, the whole category of dairy uh, seem to be doing really well after the outbreak. So it would seem that the US isn't really going to suffer from some of the food shortages in the short term that Europe did because you're able to supply them with information as to what they need to get in and, and when, and they can be ahead of that curve instead of behind it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It is uh, turnaround time, shipping time, restocking time, production time, sourcing of material takes time, etc. So being ahead of that helps a lot. The other part is obviously to understand as it shifts from uh, restaurants and grocery stores to now being mostly grocery stores, what is the demand when people are making more food at home? What are the products that they are using? So seeing that stuff like butter, for instance, is up so much and seeing that um, uh, sour cream and sour milk is up so much is probably an indication that people are making more uh, food at home. That sweet milk or normal milk is up 31%. It's probably because there's a lot of people who have kids at home these days that uh, are consuming more dairy products and consuming more milk. And so understanding that kind of shift between food retail, food grocery, and uh, what happens to food grocery as people make more food at home, I think the data can help a lot with that too. And and, in, and as far as what you're able to do for the 
retailers in the US. How often do you update your information? You know, it's actually updated by the second. So we have updated information by the second. And then we publish it every every day, basically. We add, add up the day before and we publish it uh, every morning. That allows them to kind of look one week back, so Friday or like Monday, one week ago, and compare that to Monday today. Go back two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, which is very unique because most of the data that's accessible is not down to the individual product level. And it's typically uh, one week or two weeks delayed. And one to two weeks makes a big difference here as we uh, everybody trying to understand in real time what's, uh, what, what's going on. So the ones that use it, use it get a big advantage because they do get an, a chance to kind of look a little bit into the future here. And as far as how they get that data, is it through an interface? Is it, how does the actual process yeah, work? I can, I can actually just show you. It's not so well for a podcast to show things, but you can actually <laughs> just go to crisp.com forward slash demand watch. And in that interface, you can drill down on every product category in the grocery store. You can draw, drill down and find individual type of products. I think there are 32,000 products that's available. So you can see, in the, see the demand for one particular product for a whole category and see that on a day-to-day basis there. So. Right. And you, you say this interface and this data is free at the moment? Yeah, it's free. You can just go to... Uh, gocrisp.com slash demandwatch and here can see any any category of products. And are you getting feedback from the retailers as to how useful this is to them? Yeah, we were like, yeah, how much can I share it with everybody I know? Because this is like giving, giving I said, yes, it's free, you can share it, but I don't have to pay for it. No, you don't have to pay for it. Um, I think it's because it's also a little bit of a, somewhat of a service to our country, right? Because we want everybody to have food and uh, and get food, and we want to make sure that the factories and the manufacturers make the right the food that people are actually buying sustainably more and make less of what they what they're buying sustainably less. So the uh, so for us, it's also been a part of we we want to make sure that we can provide a good service out to everybody. And the company was started around. And the, the goal of being a part of reducing food waste, and uh, so so we want to kind of be able to give give back to the industries and give back to to the society with, with this product. A really interesting interview there. I hope you will agree. And one thing that I did have to edit out of the interview was the fact that, of course, most people are working at home now. And at exactly the same time, we were both interrupted by children. I certainly think that we're becoming a lot more accustomed to that kind of thing and becoming a lot more relaxed about it. I know in the past that would have been cause for alarm, but now it just seems to be something that's quite natural. So that's definitely one good thing about working from home. We heard some disturbing reports recently that in some places milk is being dumped, retailers are limiting consumers' dairy purchases, and farmers don't know if the milk that they produce will get picked up or if they will even get paid. A coalition of dairy groups in the Midwest said major segments of the milk marketplace dried up virtually overnight, and it's asking the government for help. To tell us more about what the situation is like for producers and how the government can help, as well as the plan put forward by the NMPF and the IDFA is John Omhafer, Executive Director of the Wisconsin Cheesemakers Association. Well, in the United States, 
we've experienced what has to be called now a crisis. We have an industry that uh, about 50% of dairy products in the U.S. move through food service versus grocery and, and other channels. Schools have closed. Uh, most restaurants in the United States are closed, hundreds of thousands of restaurants. And we found ourselves with you know, reduced service, reduced orders from, from that sector to the point where a vast chunk, 25, 30% of, of sales for dairy have vanished. And overnight, this is a crisis in the dairy industry. There is milk now backing up around the United States. Uh, many states now have farms that are disposing of milk into manure pits and on the ground because very suddenly our largest channel for sales all but vanished in the United States uh, for the right reasons, of course. We're doing what we can to stop the progress of this virus, but it's had a major impact on dairy farmers and the dairy processing community. About a third of U.S. milk sales moved through retail, and we did have a great surge uh, two, three weeks ago in sales of fluid milk, uh, bottled milk, which in the United States is the vast majority is fresh milk, not uh, aseptically packaged. So there was a, a great buyout. Uh, store shelves were emptied. Uh, cheese, butter, yogurt, everything moved right off the shelves in sort of a, uh, a panic buy by consumers. And now we've begun to see a softening in retail here in the third week since that happened. Everyone's cupboards are full in the United States and they're working off uh, what they purchased. So not only is food service greatly diminished, uh, retail sales have moved back toward normal and our exports are predicted to be down in the same vein. Uh, a lot of what we export for dairy in the United States moves into food service in Asia, China, Japan, around the world. And those markets are diminished as well. And of course, as you're probably seeing in other nations, uh, logistics at ports, distribution is, is not great around the world. So we're looking at diminished exports. So you take all of those markets as diminished and we've got too much milk in the United States right now. And it's an unfortunate situation. Especially Wisconsin, of course, known for its cheese. And, and if the food service and restaurant trade dries up, then much of the the cheese trade dries up as well, I assume. Yes, cheese is particularly driven by food service. And, and you have companies and, and plants around the country that make cheese that are either fully dedicated to serving the food service market or partially. And uh, in each case those plants have uh, found sales lost. And it's difficult in the industry to maneuver between retail and food service. Obviously, uh, recipes are different, package size, it, it, there's more bulk packaging for food service, so your packaging machines are set for that size, your cup sizes, your bag sizes are, are set for food service, Labeling, as required by the federal government, is different for food service versus retail. 
And the distribution channels are different. There's literally different distribution companies for food service versus retail. And you cannot simply flip a switch and become a retail sales corporation if you have been serving the food service industry for years. So that's that's the problem on the cheese side in the United States. And of course, Wisconsin makes turns 90% of our milk in this state into cheese. So we're particularly uh, hit by the loss of the food service market. Yeah, that certainly would be a problem. And milk is being dumped because of all of this? Right. Uh, it's hard to get a grasp on quantities because uh, this sort of word comes up anecdotally about milk being uh, disposed of on farms and in some cases uh, coming to the factory and then being disposed of. But uh, it's happening and it's happening in many states and we'll have to begin to get a grip on it because we do want to have programs step in as uh, as was announced uh, last night by IDFA, International Dairy Foods Association, and National Milk Producers Federation. Uh, one of their ideas and an idea we've been floating for a couple of weeks now is that if we can capture the volume of lost milk, we can try to compensate those dairy producers for that loss. And how is the communication between farmers and processors? I assume that there's good communication going on between them? Yes, um, it's good. I think people are seeing that there's a third force, an outside force at work here. This was not an industry-created phenomenon, so I think there's great cooperation we're seeing both at the organization level, like those two big organizations talking together. Processors have virtually to a company sent uh, letters and, and put their fieldmen in the field with notes to their, their farms. Most of them are asking farms either not to grow, this is not a time to add cows, and some have asked their farms to look for the opportunity to you know cull some of the herd and, and try to keep a damper on milk production because otherwise there's just not a place to process all the milk we've produced. And now, of course, we're in the spring flush. Milk production has been up one to one and a half to nearly 2% in recent months. Milk prices were good. And now that has turned terribly. And we've got uh, cheese prices uh, at the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, which sets the price for milk in the country. Uh, has dropped 75 cents in the last three weeks. We've lost 67% of the value of the cheddar block which is kind of the standard for the value of cheese in the United States, plus 67% of its value in three weeks. It's the most unprecedented incident in the dairy industry in anyone's career over here. And uh, it's not over. We're, we're in the midst of it. So it is a time for solutions. It's a time to think out of the box in the United States because just getting rid of milk is not a sustainable proposition and it doesn't get at this time product made and product paid for so that you can use those dollars to pay the dairy producer. It's a problem. There are There's a lot of cheese being made in the United States right now that's going to be stored or frozen without a buyer and on the hope that it could be sold in the future. But of course, without a buyer, there's no cash generated and with no cash generated, the cheesemaker has to still pay the producer 
and uh, that will begin to be a serious problem because they'll burn through their equity to keep paying for that fresh milk, even though they don't have a sale for the cheese. And how does retail fit into this? Because obviously they can't just go out and sell a whole load more. And as you said, the producers can't just make cheese that they were making for food service and turn it into cheese for retail, which just flood the market anyway. Yes, and retail obviously has picked up. Uh, People still are eating. And we saw gains such as a week-over-week gain in cheese at retail of 70%. The next week, they sold 78% more cheese than the week before. But this last week in the U.S., there was only 38% growth. So we're seeing this big boom in cheese sales now tailing off to where people have filled their cupboards and their in their refrigerators and they're going to work off that supply. We'll see cheese sales normalize. You've got dairy products back on the shelves. We're seeing retailers take down the signs they had put up saying uh, you may only take one or two gallons of milk from the case. And uh, so the supply is there for the consumer, but that pickup in sales has not come close to matching the loss on the food service side. And we believe that will continue. So, There'll always be a deficit as long as the nation's schools, colleges, institutions, destinations, Disneyland's, and retail chains for restaurants, as long as they're all closed, we won't sell as much dairy product in the United States. As people are losing jobs and the the economy tightens, it's going to put pressure on people in terms of their spending ability once we come out of this. It's quite possible that people may not eat out as often once the recovery's happened. That's possible. Part of the plan that was unveiled last night by National Milk Producers Federation and IDFA was to have an unprecedented buy of dairy products by the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And again, this is just a proposal to the government. It's not been accepted by the government. But just last night, those two organizations asked the government to step in and buy 170 million pounds of cheese, 17 million pounds of butter, 360 million pounds of fresh milk for the bottle, 16 million pounds of powdered milk. So overall, 600 million pounds of dairy products our industry has asked the government to step in and buy and then release to feeding programs, family feeding programs, school lunch programs that are continuing to make uh, lunches that people can pick up from closed schools. It's a, it's a win-win if we can get milk flowing again and not being disposed of and at the same time offer this food for free to families around the country through feeding programs. It's a good idea. We hope the government will step in and, and make this sort of buy to stabilize what is an unstable situation. You think that's probably the, the best case scenario and the best fix right now? I think it is. There's simply no alternative to such a vast loss of market than for the government to step in and just temporarily, and this may, we hope, is only a few months, maybe, maybe more than a few months, step in and establish a market where product can flow and people that can't afford to buy dairy if they have lost a a family job or or hadn't uh, had the means before can still get dairy in their diet. 
so we yes we think it's we think it has to happen in the short term at least is that something that all of the dairy organizations are on board with obviously you can't speak for them all but i know you had that alliance going that sent the sent the communication to the government it's along similar lines i guess Right. We had come out with similar ideas that were uh, being proposed in the Wisconsin area with our organization, Wisconsin Cheesemakers, and some of the producer organizations in Wisconsin, like Dairy Business Association and Professional Dairy Producers of Wisconsin, rallying behind an idea like this. What IDFA and National Milk Producers have done is put amounts, an actual request for a certain amount of purchase behind this, And they've asked for farmers to be indemnified if they have to dump milk on the ground. And there's other aspects to this plan they released last night, such as uh, loans for working capital to processors so they can continue to pay workers and uh, feeding programs for people. And uh, the idea of paying producers uh, $3 per hundredweight on 90% of their production if they can cut production by 10% from a March baseline so this plan includes the idea of producers cutting back and being compensated if they can cut back quickly. And that is proposed as an idea for April through September. Hopefully uh, hopefully, there's some positivity in that. And at least it gives gives a starting point, even if, even if there's negotiation on the actual amounts and the, the timing and everything, at least it's a good start point, hopefully. I agree. And I think you're not going to see this as a uh, the kind of negotiation where both sides have different goals. I think everyone, including the government, has the same goal. I think everyone sees this as an unprecedented situation. So I, I don't think you'll see a lot of fight in this. I think you may see simply details worked out. And also to see if USDA can find this industry what it needs because we are not the only industry impacted by this situation and USDA is dealing with all the meat side and all the fresh produce side of what's happening around the United States. But dairy, of course, is uniquely perishable. Uh, Even fresh vegetables can last a a time, but fresh milk has only got about 48 to 72 hours before something needs to happen. So I think dairy is probably the most impacted in the sense that uh, Already, we're putting a lot of milk on the ground. And there's also an environmental impact as well in terms of what you do with the milk. Right. We've got a program in place already in Wisconsin with our Department of Natural Resources to look at uh, a situation that it's not unprecedented to dispose of milk. It happens. So uh, often it's dumped into manure pits. Um, It can be tilled into the ground. And it's got, obviously, nutrients in it that are beneficial, but you want to apply it at, at a rate that doesn't overwhelm the overwhelm the ground. So, But we've got a lot of land here in Wisconsin and around the country, so I don't think you'll see an environmental impact if uh, people abide by some, some good guidance that's come out in recent days. Sure. And if you can get this deal off the ground that seems to benefit everybody, right, from producers through to consumers that will benefit from seeing product that they might not be able to afford. Right. If this if this program could be moved forward, we would see some stability in the, the supply versus the demand. That would be key. So it's really just a, a case of sort of watch this space and see what see what the government says and how quickly this can be 
put into operation? How quickly do you think that it could start benefiting people at, at both ends, the farmers and the, the consumers? Well, the first step would be to ask USDA to act and, and enact uh, loans and, and, and these sort of payments for farmers, and hopefully that will happen as swiftly as possible. And this week would be good. And then you've got to uh, ask some dairy producers how quickly they can turn on a dime. That's a question that's perhaps a little far afield of my uh, my knowledge, but definitely a situation where if they could participate in this program, they're being asked to call the herd or reduce uh, change feeding regimens to try to take down their milk production by, in this case, in this plan, 10%. And now it's over to Dublin for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Liam Fenton from INTL FC Stone. The dairy markets continue to be affected by the one factor that influences uh, every market nowadays, uh, coronavirus. The displacement of demand has been the big worry for dairy markets, um, where, for example, the, the closing of restaurants and food service outlets has killed supply requirements in this sector for, for the dairy industry. It's true to say that we've seen a big jump probably in demand from the retail sector, but I, I think the overriding concern is still the, the fact that the macroeconomic effects of the virus will, will undermine global demand. We've seen butter in quarter two, um, 2020 dropped from 3,100 euros a ton to 2,750. Uh, quarter three is down about 150 euros to 2,775. And quarter four, also under pressure, uh, down about 200 euros to the 2,850 level. milk powder in quarter one dropped by about 50 euros to 1,850. Uh, Q2 was also down to the 1,900 level and quarter four down by 50 euros to 2,000. We has been trading around the 680-700 level. Thanks, Liam. Talk to you again next week, which will be week three of lockdown. Or maybe it's four. I've lost count already. And that's it for another week. I'm not sure if it's flown by, but it's another seven days closer to the end of the pandemic. The only issue is we don't have a date for it yet. But don't stop believing, I believe Journey said in 1981. I have to admit I'm a notorious lyric quota, so I'd better stop before I head into Don't Give Up by Peter Gabriel and launch into many more as well. But I will say, if you're into cheese and music, then you should really be listening to a lot of R and Brie. Sorry. We already have one interview done for next week and two more lined up, so hopefully you will join us again having recovered from that awful joke. Or maybe you want to send some more dairy jokes to us. Who knows? Feel free to send some in, and any that I get I will read out next week. Alright, so until next time, please take care, stay safe, and thanks for listening. 